Good afternoon, brothers and sisters. It's always a pleasure again to be able to see God's hand, God's work, what he's doing, and consider these things from his word. hope you've seen kind of a progression in our sessions and what we've sought to do. We began with theological foundations. We have to root all that we do in our great and glorious triune God. That's where we started. And then we saw, well, how does God work today in missions? He does actually call missionaries, calls people to go. He calls churches to send. And last night we were looking at uh, a sending church and what a sending church does. Tonight, or this afternoon then, we come to what does a missionary actually do when they go onto the field? Now there's so much more that could be said. Uh, there's a lot that could be said about preparing to go on the field and all that's involved in that. There's a lot in that as well, but that's not going to be the main focus of our subject this afternoon. But what is the work of the missionary? What are they to do when they arrive on their field of service? What's the goal of mission work? What is their aim? And so I have seven points for us this afternoon. Um, And of necessity, because this is such a massive topic, we are really only skimming the surface. But uh, seven things that I want us to consider when we think about the work of a missionary. So I'll give you the seven points, and I'll repeat them as we go. But here are the seven points. First, the purpose of the work. What's the purpose of the work? Secondly, the peculiarity of the work. Third, the priority of the work. Fourth, the pattern of progress in the work. Fifth, the practical principles of the work. Sixth, the power to persevere in the work. And seventh, the praise for the work. So these are our seven points. First, let's consider uh, the purpose of the work, and we'll be looking at various passages. So please turn your Bibles to the Great Commission again in Matthew 28. We've seen this many times already, but it's important to have it before us. Read these verses again, starting in verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What is the end goal or aim of the missionary's labors? What's the end goal of his work? Well, we remember what's the whole goal of missions? What's the goal of everything? The glory of God. But it's the glory of King Jesus specifically in the expansion of his kingdom on the earth. But how does his kingdom expand? Well, from our com- the commission, we see it's through making disciples. But there's more to it. And if you can put it this way, it's through making disciples and planting visible indigenous local churches among every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. J.H. Bavink says this in his work, The Introduction to the Science of Missions. Missions is the activity of the church. In essence, it is nothing else than an activity of Christ exercised through the church, through which the church in this interim period 
in which the end is postponed, calls the peoples of the earth to repentance, the faith in Christ, so that they may be made his disciples and through baptism be incorporated into the fellowship of those who wait and await the coming of the kingdom in its final form. In other words, as we see in the Great Commission, what the work is and its end goal is the actual planting of other local churches around the world. We've said this many times. Making converts is not enough. Just because someone comes to faith in Christ, that's not the end of the work. That's not the goal. We must have those who are disciples. And you know that word. Disciple means a lifelong learner and follower of Jesus. They're going to be following him throughout their entire life. And what does it say right after making disciples? Baptizing them. And baptism is not an ordinance given to individual Christians. It is a church ordinance. The Lord's Supper is a church ordinance. So even in the commission itself, it's pointing to the planting of churches. And of course, as we've said, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you is not something that takes place in a short gospel presentation. It is something that takes a lifetime. That means they must be those who are incorporated into the church to be taught for the duration of their time on the earth. So the goal is local churches being planted around the world. The purpose of the missionary's work is to glorify Christ through the planting of churches. And again, what this brings us back to is the centrality of the local church in the plan and purpose of God. The Great Commission is given by Christ to who? To his church. Yes, it's his apostles there, but his apostles are the foundation of the church. It's given to the church. And it's to be carried out by who? By the church. And the goal of it is what? Planting other churches. And so, uh, I think it's important for us to see Christ's own heart for his church. There's this wonderful little book written by someone with this great title called, Jesus Loves the Church and So Should You. Highly commend that book to you. And one of the points that our brother Earl makes is the New Testament is a church book. And the work of missions is about the church. I love going through the book of Ephesians. And one of the things I love thinking through in the book of Ephesians is the different ways in which the church is described. And how it's related to Christ in the way that it's described. So the church in Ephesians 1, 22, it's talked about as the body of Christ. And Christ is its head. And he's head over all things. What For what? For the church. I love how our confession talks about the providence of God and how he overrules all things. For what? For the good of his church. He loves his church as the head. Talks about the church as the temple in Ephesians 2, 19 to 22. And it is a temple that Christ is building that Christ himself is the chief cornerstone so that there's a, the dwelling place of the Spirit of God. The church is also God's wise display. I love that view of it in, in Ephesians 3, 8 to 10, where it talks about how the church is the manifold wisdom of God being made known to rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. It's through his church that he's showing to even demons and all in these other Spiritual realms as well. His marvelous wisdom. 
And then, of course, there's the image of the church as the bride. The bride of Christ. The bride, the one that Jesus so loved that he died for her. He gave himself up for her to sanctify her, to cleanse her, to wash her with the water of the word that he might do what? Present the church to himself. And there you see the end goal is that Christ would have his bride for all eternity. The end of it all is that his bride, his church, is with him. There's the wedding supper of the Lamb, and we're with him for all eternity. So the work of the missionary is the planting of the church that Christ loves. That's the great end. That's the great purpose. But then let's think, secondly, about the peculiarity of the work. Now, one of the things I was trying to point out yesterday is church planting missionaries do not have a distinctive office in the church. What I mean by that is we live in a post-apostolic age. There are no living apostles on the earth. They're in heaven. There are no people on the earth who hold that kind of office. There's only two remaining offices today, as our confession says in Chapter 26, paragraph 8, a particular church gathered and completely organized according to the mind of Christ consists of officers and members and the officers appointed by Christ to be chosen and set apart by the church so called and gathered for the peculiar administration of ordinances and execution of power or duty which he entrusts them with or calls them to to be continued to the end of the world are bishops or elders and deacons. Those are the only two offices in the church now. And you know, pastor, elder, bishop, that's all the same office, different terms for the same. And then there's the office of deacon. The point I'm trying to say is, in thinking about the missionary call, it's not that it's a call to a separate and distinct office in the church. A church planner is an elder, a pastor, a bishop. But it is a call to a distinctive work by that elder. You think about even Acts 13, you have Saul who did have the office of an apostle. But then you also had Barnabas, which I don't believe was in the office of apostle, but of a pastor. And he goes with him to do the work. And that's part of that transition period of Acts, the apostolic age to the non-apostolic age. And you see both working together in that sense. And another thing that we recognize then about uh, Eldership and biblical principles of eldership. I'm not going to take time to unpack all of this, but just to mention, we believe in a plurality of elders in a church. That's the goal. It's not always how it starts, but that's the goal, to have a multiplicity. We see where every time that Paul's planning a church, elders, plural, are ordained in that church. We also believe in the parity of elders. That is, one elder doesn't have more authority than another elder. It's not like he gets two votes and the other elder gets one. There's a parity as far as their authority is concerned. But we must not forget this third principle, and that is there is a diversity of gifts and function. Not all elders have the same gifting. Therefore, they don't do all the same work. And this is where there's that difference for a missionary call. They have the gifts to do this peculiar work. So there is then a peculiar work for the missionary. Even in what we saw yesterday in Acts 13, verse 2, what does it say? Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work 
to which I'm going to call them or which I've called them. There's a work that's distinct. And what is it? Turn with me now to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. You remember the situation, the church in Corinth is struggling with many and different things. One of the things that they're struggling with in the church is divisions in the church based on the different leaders in the church. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I like the way he preaches. I like the way he does this. And they're dividing over these differences in their gifts, which was not a good thing. But what do you see Paul say? Start in verse 5. We'll read down to verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 3. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. There you have it. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. And someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. Let's go on to verse 11. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And what is the work distinctively that Paul had? It was to be a foundation layer. He was the one who goes in and lays the foundation of a new church. Someone else comes along and builds upon that foundation. But a foundation is very important. I remember after I graduated from college, I really wanted to stay in the town that I was in because I wanted to stay with the local church that I was at. I didn't want to go somewhere else, and so I was looking for work. Um, I had a computer science degree, but the problem was all the computer science jobs have gone overseas just a few months before that. So there were no computer science jobs there. So I was looking for work, and uh, one of the elders in our church wanted to build a 1,400-square-foot addition as a mother-in-law in suite for his mother-in-law. So that's what I did for the next seven months was to build a a house. But of course, the first thing you have to do is lay a foundation. It was fascinating to see the rebar, pouring the concrete, all the things that go into the plumbing, having everything set so that you could build what needs to be on top of it, on top of it. It's very important that you get that foundation right, that it's solid, and that it's cured. But the house isn't finished with a foundation, but you have to start with a foundation. So this is the distinctive work that Paul has, that missionaries have, and that is to establish churches by laying that foundation. And it has to be a solid foundation. And the way that Paul describes it is none other than the foundation of Jesus Christ. You cannot lay anything else. So that's what we see Paul and Barnabas did. Everywhere they go in their missionary journeys, they're laying foundations But they don't stay. They move on. Others continue the work to finish, to bring it to the end, to bring everyone to full maturity in Christ as they continue to walk in this earth until they die or Christ returns. So this, then, is the peculiar work of the missionary. It is to be a foundation layer. But that 
let's think thirdly about the priority of the work. Where do you go to lay foundations? Here, turn with me uh, to Romans chapter 15. Where are these foundations needing to be laid? Where does a missionary go? What is the priority for this? And we'll read starting in verse 14 down to verse 24. Remember, Paul's writing this from Corinth. He hasn't been to Rome. He's desirous of going to Rome. He's longed for a long time, but he's been hindered. But he writes, hoping to go and... And in verse 14, he writes this, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly, by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit." In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around Illyricum I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. Where do missionaries need to go? What is the priority? The answer given by Paul here is where Christ already has not been named. And this idea of where, where Christ is named, it doesn't just mean that the, the name of Christ is heard. We're talking about where it's been clearly proclaimed, the Christ of the gospel, the Christ of the scriptures. And not only proclaimed, but acknowledged and embraced. And so it's places where that has not happened is the priority of the missionary. Not to go to places where there are faithful sound churches that already exist, even if they're few in number. Those churches are to take up the work of spreading the gospel in their region. It's not uh, going to where there's even just a few churches in that sense. And you notice, I said Paul was longing to come to Rome. He even wanted to impart to them some kind of spiritual gift, he says in Romans chapter 1. But he has been hindered from coming. What could keep Paul from such an important task as going to Rome to encourage the church at the center of the empire? A church that he didn't plant, that Christ planted through other means. That's there. He says in verse 22, This is the reason why I've so often been hindered. Because I have been busy doing the work of taking Christ to where he has not been named. Brothers, we need to grab hold of that. 
we need to recognize there are still, as I said yesterday, 42% of the world where Christ has not been named. And who from our churches is going? Who is burdened for those who have no opportunity to hear the only message that will save their soul from eternal damnation? Now, in our day, we do need to recognize there are maybe three ways of thinking about this where there are no foundations. And clearly, the first is that there's unreached people groups where there is no access to any kind of gospel. Literature, anything. Places where the Bible has not been translated to the language of the people. That is certainly what we mean by this, where there has been no foundation laid. But here's the reality. It's not just places like that in a clear sense, but also places where maybe the foundation was once laid. There were vibrant, vital churches, but that is no more today. Places where less than 1% of the whole population in a region or area are professing born-again believers. Places like Europe. I would also argue there is a certain sense, and while this may not be the main thrust or emphasis, but part of this work of foundation laying in our day is also going to places to shore up faulty foundations. And here I speak of places like the majority world. It's where we talk about Africa, Asia, and South America. That's what we call the majority world in our day. And in those places, while there has been some kind of foundations, the, the Christianity is spreading in some sense. What's spreading is doctrinally unsound Christianity. Foundations are not sure, and buildings topple and fall. And so there is need for men to go in those places and to shore up foundations. That the church may continue to grow and progress in those areas as well. So that's the priority in the work. So fourthly then, we know what this peculiar work is of laying foundations. We know the places to go. What does it actually look like? The pattern of progress in the work. What does it look like on the field? And what are some of the things to be done? Uh, well, Eric Wright in his book on uh, practical theology of missions speaks of the principles that guided William Carey. I'll just read those to you. When he arrived in India in 1793, he operated under five basic principles. The gospel should be preached by every possible means as widely as possible. Secondly, the Bible should be translated into the languages of the people and distributed widely. Third, the church should be established at the earliest possibility. Fourth, missionaries should carry on a profound study of the culture and thought of the people among whom they were to minister. And fifthly, as early as possible, indigenous leaders should be trained to carry on the ministry of the new churches. So those, I think, are very good and very helpful principles. And I just want to kind of maybe put it in a slightly different order and kind of talk about some of those things. And the first thing that's going to happen when you go into a new place and you're going into a world, a culture you're not familiar with, especially a language that you do not know, the first thing that must happen is language learning and assimilation to the culture. 
In order to communicate the gospel of Christ, you must be able to speak it in words and in words that could be understood. That means you need to know the language that the people are speaking. But not only that, you have to understand the culture. Language and culture go together. There's so many things about idioms and other things about language that if you don't understand that, you're not going to communicate clearly, but with confusion. Generally, in our day, uh, missiologists agree, it's vitally important that missionaries go and spend their first two years intensively learning a language, if it's a language. And a large portion of their time, if they're going to a place like Alan's going to a place where they speak English, Australian English, but English, there is some language study that will go on in that way. (laughs) But it's a different culture. And taking that time to really assimilate, to understand that culture... And here it's important to understand that it's, it's not just the man missionary. It's the family that goes as well. It's important, especially for the wife. One of the main reasons many missionary couples do not stay on the field is because the wife didn't learn the language well. The sending church didn't recognize the importance, not only of the man who's preaching the word to understand that language, but his wife as well, that she can assimilate into the culture. You think about this. You're going to a place where you are uprooted from everything you know. You're plopped down in a completely different place. It's foreign. You don't have any close, as we were reminded last night, bosom buddies from Anna Green Gables. Uh, You don't have that there. And you're not going to have that if you don't learn the language and the culture. So it's vitally important. It's important for our churches to understand that and for the missionaries that go as well. But you're going to have to learn about the customs. Um, you know, one of the things about going, for example, to Asian countries, you do not walk into the house with your shoes on. That is highly offensive. <laughs> and even the way that you do gestures, if you want someone to come and they're at a distance, in an Asian country, you do not go like this. That's only what you do for animals. If you want a person to come, you turn your hand this way and ask them to come. Those are just small examples, but it's vitally important. And what this is, is it's a matter of loving others. Loving them with a servant heart. Our brother Jerry talked about uh, law and liberty yesterday. And cultural culture, cultural accommodation. We looked at the passage in First Corinthians nine, nineteen to twenty-three. Don't miss though what it says at the beginning in verse nineteen. Paul writes, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. This matter of cultural adaptation and assimilation is a matter of being a servant. It's a matter of a servant heart that is a heart like Christ who humbled himself, came to our world, took on human flesh and blood. So it's it's an exercise of Christ-like humility. It's giving up of your own preferences. In many ways, giving up your own culture, taking on that of where you're going because you love Christ and you love the people and you want them to know his love in the gospel. So as far as biblically possible, you seek to accommodate to that culture. Learn the language, assimilate to it. Of course, there's a lot more that could be said about that. So that's 
part of that. It's going to be an ongoing thing. That's a lifelong thing. It's not just like you do it for the first two years and you're done, but it's a continuing type of thing. But then the other aspect of the work, the next pattern of progress or phase, you could say, is intense evangelization. Proclaiming the Lord Jesus Christ through every legitimate biblical means. We cannot underestimate, of course, then the importance of prayer in this. How are disciples made? Well, in a very fundamental sense, we must understand we can't even make a disciple. It's Christ who changes the heart. But praise God, he gives us the privilege of being part of the means by which he works. And it's through the ministry of the word and prayer. And the importance then of prayer, because we can't change anyone's heart. We can't make that word effective. And so we must be a prayerful people who proclaim his word, praying for the Lord to convert, praying the Lord to bring them to faith, to make disciples. But we also need to be praying for the Lord to open doors and to guide in the work itself. In a particular context and location, it's not going to look the same everywhere. The opportunities and the ways that you're seeking to proclaim the gospel here in Clinton, Louisiana, aren't the same way that we do it necessarily exactly in Clarksville. It's not going to be the same way Alan does it exactly in Australia. But recognizing that we're dependent on the Lord and it's his work that he's doing, praying to him, Lord Jesus, open the door for your gospel and your word to go forth here and show us the way. Paul himself said in Colossians 4, 3, At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. And did the Lord ever open a door, didn't he? <laughs> we were talking in break the other day, about yesterday, about Caesar's household. <laughs> The Lord opened the door, but he prayed. And he asked the church there in Colossae to pray for the Lord to open the door. The, the sending church to pray, to open a door there in Australia. And to show and to guide what are the ways, the different ways that we can take this message, this word, in every legitimate means. We need to recognize methods and technique are not the main thing. It is Christ working through his word. It is interesting to note... Uh, in the history of missions, some of the different ways and means that things have happened. Uh, John L. Nevius was a missionary, Presbyterian Reformed missionary in the 1800s in China. And he wrote about some of the different things that they did and uh, in order of what they saw the most, the Lord bring the most converts through. So here's the order that he gives of, of things. And the very first thing he said was private social intercourse. In other words, hospitality, having people in your home where you speak the gospel to them one-on-one, -on -one, where they see your life, that was the most, in that sense, fruitful. Secondly was Bible distribution, having the Bible and giving it into the hands where they can read through the scriptures. Third was tract distribution. Fourth was chapel preaching. Fifth was translating good Christian books and Distributing them, and lastly was itinerating, going around to the various areas. Now, all those are legitimate means, and the Lord used all of those. 
And we should pray for God to give wisdom in exactly what to do in the particular context where the missionary is. So there's intense evangelization, and Christ makes disciples. But then the next phase will be gathering and forming them into a local church. You disciple them further. You teach them. You train them. You teach them to obey all things. And here we need to recognize, even though we're saying that Paul and the work of the missionary is a work of foundation laying, even as our brother Fred reminded us yesterday, Paul was able to say to the Ephesian elders, to whom he'd been with two and a half, maybe three years, he was able to say to them that I have not shrinked back, I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. This work of laying a foundation, it's not a quick work, it's not something that's done uh, even in a matter of just a few minutes, a few months. It's taking that time to be able to bring the church to a place where it can be formed. Now, it's not going to be at the place where it's at full maturity in the most mature church, and the missionary should not stay until there's complete and full maturity. But should stay till that church is formed fully. In our church, when we were doing the church plan, I often talked about this with our people and the idea of just thinking about birth and uh, a baby. And this period in which the church planner is there, it's like the time of pregnancy. You have this baby in the womb, and as it's there, it's growing and developing, and all the parts are coming together, and that baby is fully formed in the womb. It has hands, fingers, uh, it has its toes, it has heart, has all the parts. And then when it's ready, it's birthed, and that's when it's formed. And all along the way, I was encouraging our church, saying, we're, we're about like in the three-month period now. <laughs> We've got a ways to go here. To getting to the place where you have, even as we read in the confession earlier, a church fully formed according to the mind of Christ is one that has officers and members. And it's at that point that there you can say the foundation has been laid. So that means there's going to be the important part of this period of time. It's going to be training men to be elders and deacons, indigenous men. And then for them to take up that work, to be appointed, to be uh, set apart by the church. And then comes the next phase, which is it's time for the missionary to move on to the next towns, to the next place, to the next work, to lay another foundation. And there's important wisdom that needs to go there. The, the church needs to understand that this is the work of the missionary from the beginning. The church needs to understand that the missionary isn't planning to stay there forever but that he is there to help bring this church to birth. If you take the analogy further, really more to a place of kind of like adulthood, <laughs> where they can go on. But So it's, it's important that that's part of the way that the missionary goes about the work from the beginning. But you also have to remember, as a missionary moves on, it's maybe the end of the job of laying a foundation. It's not the end of a relationship, though. And one of the things you see Paul over and over again is what? He comes back to visit those churches, to continue to strengthen them. Not only that, he writes letters to them. There's a relationship that continues with the missionary. 
But the foundation has been laid, and he is able to move on to lay other foundations as well. So that's in brief what you can say is the pattern of progress for the work of the missionary. Uh, Fifthly, I want us to think about uh, the practical principles for the work. And here we turn to uh, just some principles from uh, the history of missions. And uh, there was a major shift that occurred in the history of missions concerning missionary methods in the 1800s. Some of you are probably very familiar with it, uh, but just to refresh your memory, uh, there was a particular method, the older method, that went something like this. A missionary goes to another country, and they build a mission compound. They live on that compound, they stay in that compound. But they kind of go out and make these trips and make converts. As soon as they have some converts, especially promising converts, they bring them into the compound. They also begin to pay them to help in the work of evangelization and discipleship and those things. And so nationals become workers with them. The missionaries pay them. The missionaries uh, build church buildings for them later on. The missionaries maintain control of the work all the way through. But here's the problem. This is what they found after 15 years or so. The missionary is asking himself, why is it that all of the indigenous Christians show no initiative, have no concern for their neighbors around them? How come they aren't seeking to take up the financial responsibility of the church? And the answer is fairly clear. It's because the missionary has been doing it all for them. Kept them as children, teaching them, uh, treating them as immature children, doing everything for them, not allowing them to grow up or mature. And so it's in that background that principles developed for indigenous church planting. Here's some of the names of those who developed them, and you can read some of their works. Uh, Rufus Anderson, who was born in 1796, uh, he was a leader in uh, the mission society here in the United States. Uh, Another man, born the exact same year as him uh, in the U.K., named Henry Venn, leader of uh, Anglican missions organization there in the U.K. Then later on, the principles they had were further developed by the man I mentioned earlier, John L. Nevius. And then, even more recently, uh, Roland Allen, who was an Anglican missionary. And then Melvin Hodges is probably the most recent to write on these things in his book about the indigenous church. He himself was a a missionary with the Assemblies of God. But the three principles that they developed from scriptures, studying the ministry of Paul, studying what he did, were what are known as the three self-principles. A church, an indigenous church, is to be self-supporting, self-governing, and self-propagating. So what do they mean by that? So self-supporting, that is, that indigenous church come to a place where it doesn't need outside money to carry on its work in ministry. All that's needed for that work that it's doing comes from that local church. So there's important things in the way that uh, this works out in the work of the missionary. The missionary goes and he's not seeking financial help from the churches that he's planning. They don't support him that way. They don't pay him in that sense. He's being supported by the churches um, back in his home country. 
from ascending church and sister churches in that sense. As he's beginning this work of laying the foundation, he's not asking them to support him. But that doesn't mean he isn't teaching the importance of giving to the work of the Lord. It's vitally important that he does that. And then as the church is forming, they are able to save that money, to use that money for ministry expenses that the church is doing. Developing a fund maybe for a building. Developing a fund for their own indigenous pastor when he's going to come. Be raised up to be able to help with that. So that they're to be exhorted, encouraged to give generously to the one who has given so much for us, the Lord Jesus Christ. But to use that money to become a self-supporting church. The church should be taught and trained then to have uh, their own bank account for these monies. To manage it themselves, having those within the church that's being formed there to manage these things. So self-supporting. But then self-governing. That is, leaders raised up from that local church. And that means that the missionary, from the very beginning, must focus on developing men. It's something that I so greatly benefited from many, many years ago was at uh, Arpka School of Church Planting. And there was a session by a man named Steve Martin about training men. And that stuck with me. That was 11 years ago, and I've never forgotten it. And the importance of focusing on men to be men of God. You start with training men to be Christian men, men who have uh, responsibility, men who know how to be heads of their households, men who then also know how to be good churchmen, faithful church members, to serve in the church. And as you see Christ giving certain gifts, certain graces to these men, you continue to further train them to be leaders in the church, focusing on the men. And some of that means, you know, as you are doing evangelism, you are inviting them along with you. They see you doing it. As you have unbelievers in your home, you have their family come as well. And you're sharing the gospel and speaking, and then you, you may turn and an unbeliever asks you a question, and you say to the man, how would you answer that? Involve him in that, that teaching, that training, and seeing how the Lord would raise up men in the church. But as I already mentioned, another aspect of being self-governing is, again, the missionary must make clear to the church that he plans to leave as soon as their own leaders are raised up. Now, it's not necessarily a right away. I mean, we don't, it's not like it's a, okay, you have them, I'm gone. There can be transition. There's wisdom in how that works. But that means the missionary has to be very deliberate in speaking about that. He has to be deliberate in encouraging those in the church to build relationships not only with himself but with others in the church and particularly with these other men who will be leaders in the church, that it's not all focused on him, that if he leaves, everything falls apart. In one sense, you can think of the missionary, can think of himself and have the church help think of himself that, he, yes, he's doing the work of a pastor while he's there laying that foundation, but he's kind of their interim pastor. He's not there for the long term. And when it is time, he will move on. And the third thing, we have self, 
supporting, self-governing, self-propagating. And that is that church should have the spiritual vitality and vigor and life to spread and propagate the gospel themselves, where they are and beyond. That means part of the work of the missionary is with those indigenous disciples, members of the church. You're teaching and training believers how to speak the gospel, how to present it clearly, how to season their speech with grace, how to draw unbelievers to Christ. Teach them how to answer certain objections in their culture specifically. What are some of the objections to Christianity that they're facing? Help them as they're dealing with these things in their, in their workplace with their co-workers. Making evangelistic opportunities a centerpiece of the prayer meeting. Praying for the lost that they know specifically in the prayer meeting. And not only that, I think it's vitally important that at the very beginning of the work that there is also a focus beyond even the work that's taking place right there to the global church and a concern for the nations. From the very beginning, praying for the work that's being done by other missionaries in other lands. Cultivating a heart for missions, a heart for Christ's kingdom, from the very beginning. And so those three things, and as the missionary does that labor and does that work, and it comes to a place where it's formed and birthed, it becomes a church that's self-supporting, self-governing, and self-propagating. That's the, some of the practical principles of the work. Now, there's many more things that could be said there, but we're going to move on. Sixthly, then, where does the power to persevere come from? The power to persevere in the work. And here we must recognize, we must recognize and understand, and the sending church especially needs to recognize and understand that the work of a missionary is a difficult, hard labor that is filled with trials and, yes, suffering. Turn with me. Colossians chapter 1. Paul, writing from prison, in a sense reflecting on his ministry as well, he talks about his sufferings. And he says in verse 24, of chapter 1. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. Paul was certainly someone who was familiar with sufferings, wasn't he? You can think of the list he gives in 2 Corinthians 11. 24 to 28, five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul knew suffering. 
And yet he is able to say, I rejoice in my sufferings. Because he understands that this is part of the work that he's called to do. Missionaries must understand that before they go. They do understand it when they go. And the sending church needs to be cognizant of that and remember that and uphold these brothers and sisters. But what upholds Paul is he's recognizing that he's doing this not for his own sake. It's not suffering for his own sake. That's not what continues him on. Whose sake is it for? For your sake. For the sake of the body of Christ. For the church. That those who have not heard will hear and come and believe and be joined to Christ. You see, he says this phrase, in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. It's quite a curious phrase. And how could there be anything lacking in Christ's afflictions? What does Paul mean by this? Certainly he doesn't mean that there was anything lacking in the atoning work of Christ in that sense, anything that falls short. But what he means is that Christ's servants understand that part of the calling and part of the work is to suffer with Christ, like Christ, in taking the message of the gospel where his name has not been named. Dick Lucas said it this way, Before his return in glory, the risen Lord will continue to share the afflictions of his people until the full measure of the church's sufferings, which are Christ's afflictions, is made up. Paul's sufferings help to complete to the full, the full toll, and hasten the end. There's a measure of sufferings that Christ's people must go through before he returns. And this is part, Paul says, I am taking my part, I am taking my fill of those sufferings. To say it another way, Paul understands that God has ordained his people to suffer trials and tribulations. That's true for every single Christian, not just the missionary. Paul encouraged the churches that he planted in Acts 14 by saying, it's through many tribulations that you must enter the kingdom of God. What encouragement. But he understood as well that great phrase from Tertullian, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. He understands that Christ's kingdom does not advance through man's power. It doesn't advance through man's glory. It only advances the way Christ came, through humiliation, suffering. As we take on, as it were, what Christ did for us in a small measure and enter into the fellowship of his sufferings, that we know the power of his resurrection. And through our suffering and this hardship and the difficult work of mission work, we see Christ raise dead people to life. It's difficult work. We need power to persevere. And the amazing thing about this passage, this passage is one of those passages that upholds me. 
and has so many times. You see what Paul does. He goes on to say, follow with me, the middle of verse 24. He goes on to say, verse 25, I should say, of which, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that he has given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. What is the mystery? Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And what you see is in the midst of all this suffering... Paul perseveres in the work, the work of proclaiming him, warning and teaching negatively, exhorting. He continues in that work because he sees the goal of bringing them to maturity in Christ. But how does he do it? How does he persevere continuing in that work? Verse 29, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works in That's how a missionary perseveres. It's because Christ energizes him, enables him, empowers him to continue in the work that he's called to do. And that's how all missionaries through all ages have persevered. And Paul is able to say in Romans 15, I've completed the work around Illyricum and Mediterranean, persevere through stonings, through beatings, through shipwrecks. It's because Christ energized him. That leads us to our last point, and that is the praise for the work. And here, turn back with me to, to Romans 15 again. The praise for the work. And notice verses 17 to 19. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. So that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. In verse 17, he says, I have reason to be proud of my work. Another way of translating that is, I have reason to boast in my work. But he's not boasting in his work because of what he's done. The very next verse says, For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. The praise for the work goes to the one who has accomplished it, and it is the Lord Jesus Christ. The praise for the work goes to him. We have something to boast about, and the missionary has something to boast about at the end of his labors. Where there is that church that has been planted, he is able to point to it and say, Look at what Christ has done. Despite me. 
in spite of all my foibles, my weakness, my folly. Look at what he's done. He's made a church. And that's what you see every time Paul and Barnabas return and they report to the churches. They don't focus on, look at me, look at what I've done. Even in Acts 14, 27, it says, they declared to them all that God had done. And so the work of the missionary results in the greater praise and honor and glory of the head of the church, Jesus Christ. So, brothers and sisters, it is the reality that the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ is still on the throne, is still actively building his church. And what an amazing privilege it is that we can serve him. And what an amazing privilege it is, especially for the missionary, to be used of Christ to plant other churches that all praise, honor, glory, power, wisdom goes to him. Amen. Let's pray. King Jesus, we do stand amazed at the work that you have been doing for 2,000 years. Stand amazed, even as we are here at this church, and think of how you planted this church many, many years ago. And you have sustained it. And even now, you are using it to send out, as it is a self-propagating church, a missionary. And as our brother Alan goes, he goes to praise and to glorify you in doing the work that you've called him to do. No, oh Lord, would you use him mightily? Would you plant many churches there through our brother? And would you raise up many more? For we see, O oh Lord, the harvest fields are ripe. There's so many who have not yet heard. Lord Jesus, we plead with you. Would you receive the glory? Amen.